and insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Hello, how do you do? Patrick Madrid here reporting for duty. And if you'd like to call and be on the program, call this number, 888-914-9149, sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. 888-914-9149. And emails, patrick at relevantradio.com. Let's go to Peter to start everything off in Carmichael, California. Good morning, Peter. Morning. Good morning. Um, the the uh, beatification ceremony, does that confer being blessed and later sainthood, or is it beatification is just for sainthood? Uh, beatification is the step just before, and it could the elapse of time could be years, could be centuries, um, but beatification is the, the penultimate step before canonization. And at that step, the man, woman, boy, or girl who is on the journey to be canonized is declared blessed, and that's where the Church asserts that this person is definitely in heaven. And, I mean, I could tell you other things about it, but it's the penultimate step, and then lastly would be canonization. Now, there are some people, I'll give you an example. Blessed Miguel Pro, he was a Jesuit priest who was martyred in the late 1920s in Mexico during the anti-Catholic persecution there, and he remains blessed to this day. He was beatified but never canonized. So it's hard to say how long it might take from one phase to another, but that's the one just before canonization. Okay, I wanted to clear that up because our our, our pastor has a picture of Carlos Acutis in the in the church, and and uh, they, they say he's blessed, and they said he was he was beatified, and I thought beatified meant he was supposed to be a saint. But I, okay, I get it now. Beat, beatification is to be blessed, and then canonization is to be a saint. Then, yes, and there's a, a nuance here that I should probably point out, and that is that anyone in heaven is automatically a saint in this sense. They're oh yeah, I do that. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe for to... the benefit of those who didn't know, just to pop it in there, anybody who's in heaven is a saint. Biblically speaking, we're all saints, those who are in the body of Christ, as the New Testament talks about saints. But also we Catholics use the word saint in a more particular way to refer to those who are in heaven. Now, a canonized saint doesn't make that—if a person is canonized, doesn't make him like a higher saint in heaven. Hey, you got a promotion. It's not like that. They're already saints but they are recognized here by the Church in that particular way. Okay, thanks. I just wanted to clear up being uh, the, uh, the canonization versus uh, 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 being, being uh, uh, beatified. So, okay, right. I, I, but those ceremonies conferred. So I got okay. it. I appreciate, appreciate, appreciate your You're time. You're welcome, Thank Peter. You. Nice chatting with you. 888-914-9149 is the number to call. We're going to talk a little bit today about the IVF decision in Alabama. We'll revisit that briefly. You may remember that the Alabama Supreme Court ruled that embryos are indeed human children. Now, the word child has a particular meaning when it comes to your progress, your development over time, but the term child encompasses the fact that these unborn human beings are human beings. And that has created, uh, an, or at least it, it coincides with an odd backlash in a strange sort of way among Catholics having to do with embryos and in vitro fertilization. So I want you to be aware that's on the docket this morning. We'll be talking a little bit about that. And by the way, did you take the test for 23andMe? Uh, they got hacked recently. I think I told you about that a few weeks ago. And real quickly, if you're interested, 
they are tanking. They've gone from a $6 billion valuation to about zero now. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal about that, just to keep you up to date here. Five years ago, they say 23andMe, that's the, the DNA testing startup where you spit into a, a thingamabob, you send your spit to them, they do the DNA analysis, and they come back and they tell you who you really are, you know, what your ethnic background really is, as opposed to maybe the story that you've been told since the time you were little. And they went public in 2021. Their valuation topped $6 billion. And they're now crashing. So 23andMe's valuation has crashed 98% from its peak. And NASDAQ is threatening to delist its sub-minus $1 stock. As you can imagine, they've had rounds and rounds of layoffs. There's no profit. They're burning cash. They're saying that the thing could be just gone entirely maybe by 2025 that's just next year and one wonders doesn't one about all of those dna samples that 23andme has and what might become of those who might buy these things i don't know it has it doesn't say but the stock is trading as of a couple of days ago at 74 cents per stock per share rather and uh it doesn't look good for 23andme so just a thought, if you're interested in reading the article in the Wall Street Journal, Cyrus will post it for you on the show Twitter feed. I know it's called X nowadays, but I, I'm still old-fashioned that way. Um, Twitter, our handle there is at P. Madrid Show. If you or somebody you know has done the 23andMe testing, it might be worth your while to notice this article, take, take stock of it, because the next thing that's likely to happen is that it will be sold and that's where the issue of what happens to your your DNA, where does that go? Who's going to have that? Somebody will have it. Somebody's going to buy that. There's value in that. And that's one reason why I just, that's really the reason why I have thought, this is not a great idea because I don't want my DNA floating around out there for the highest bidder. Do you, Cyrus? I mean, do you really want that when you get right down to it? Nope, I never did it. Uh, and that's exactly the reason why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if an insurance company will buy that up because that's some I pretty wonder. valuable. Uh, sorry, we can't cover you because it shows here in your mm-hmm. uh, ancestry that you are susceptible to this this cancer. And right. uh, yeah, it's just not worth it to us to insure you. Yeah, there may be whole groups of people that would be become second class citizens in that sense, based upon their genetic background. Or they may, you know, I knew I know a guy, Cyrus who did this, I don't remember now if it was 23andMe, but he did this DNA testing. And no joke, part of his genetic makeup turned out to be like 4% Neanderthal. That's actually a category. And there's they can trace back to Neanderthals. And I said, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> I actually did say that. But he's a good enough friend that he didn't take offense. So that's something to keep in mind. And then when the next big thing comes out, be careful about that. 888-914-9149. Why don't we go to Joy now in Texas? Hello, Joy. They say you're nine years old. Is that right? Uh-huh. Well, it's nice to meet yes, you. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Thank you. What's your question for me today? Um, It's when Adam and Eve used to live in the Garden of Eden with God, mm-hmm. and... Um, was that heaven or was it heaven when they disobeyed God? Was it not heaven anymore? 
Good question. Well, when you read the Bible, and you can read about this in Genesis chapter 3 mainly, and Genesis chapter 2 a little bit as well, it's the garden that God created for Adam and Eve, and it was perfect in every respect, but it wasn't heaven. So it was somewhere here on this earth, and it was protected from the bad things that happened after Adam and Eve's sin. Like there were no hurricanes then, at least not where the garden was located. There might have been hurricanes outside of the garden, but there were no poisonous spiders that would bite you. There might have been spiders, but they wouldn't bite people. The, there was no sickness. Everything was really good. But it wasn't heaven. And if Adam and Eve had passed the test, they would have seen God face-to-face in a way similar to how the saints in heaven see God. But as you know, they failed the test, and they were cast out of the garden. But the garden was here on earth, the Bible says. So it wasn't in heaven. That was e- Heaven is even better than the Garden of Eden, if you can imagine that. Is the garden still here? People have wondered about that. I don't think that the garden is still here. I think that the condition of this perfect place where everything was without any, there, there was nothing about it that was bad. So we've mapped the whole world with satellites and people have traveled on foot and we know every square inch of this planet and we know that there is no Garden of Eden there. I mean, notwithstanding In-N-Out Burger, of course, that's a separate issue, but theologically speaking, uh, there is no Garden of Eden left on the earth. It seems like God took it back. And you know, when you read the story in the book of Genesis, after God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden, it says that he stationed a cherubim, one of the highest angels. In fact, it's the second highest category of angel, the cherubim. And he stationed an angel with a sword of fire that would bend in four different directions to kind of put a fence around the Garden of Eden so nobody could ever go back into it. I think that's the Bible's way of saying that it's no longer present on this earth. Interesting, huh? Uh Uh-huh. Well, now let me guess. If you're nine, I'm guessing you've already made your first Holy Communion, right? No, not yet. Really? Not yet? Okay. Will that be happening this year, maybe? Maybe. I hope so. We don't want to wait too long, do we? Mm-mm. All right. Any more questions for me, Joy? No. Okay. Nice chatting with you. Tell your mom I said hello, and thank you for letting you call. All right. 888-914-9149. How about Isaac in Wisconsin? Hello, Isaac. So, good morning, Mr. Madrid. Uh, my question was, uh, in Mark 8, when they have uh, Jesus healing the blind man, he heals mm-hmm. him in, like, two stages. I was okay. just wondering, like, what the significance of that was, because he could have healed him in one go, obviously. But Right. So he, he did heal the leper in Mark chapter 1 in one go. So there's an example mm-hmm. of that and other other examples. So. Um, so are you talking about, and I want to get to the right um, verse here. So which verse are you looking at? Verse 21? Um, yeah, when he's verse 22. And like, yeah. Okay, so I'll read it. I just want to make sure you and I are looking at the same thing. So Mark eight twenty two, and they came to Bethsaida, 
And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand upon him, he asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then again he laid his hands upon his eyes, and he looked intently and and was restored and saw everything clearly. Yeah, so this is an enigmatic passage, which doesn't mean that Jesus failed to do it the first time or that he had to try harder or something like that. It It might seem that way at first glance. But it seems as though there's, it seems to me at least, that there is a perhaps a corollary here that the instantaneous healing that Jesus sometimes gives, like in Mark chapter 1 to the leper, for example, uh, here is in two stages as a way maybe of showing that some people do not come to the truth all at once. They do not embrace um, the truth or God or salvation all at once. That's one way to look at it that there was a, a deeper meaning here. And so the first phase got him part of the way there. The second phase got him all the way there. Now, it could also be that for the edification of the people, Jesus wanted this to be absolutely, <laughs> I hate to use the word clear because of the nature of the miracle, Um, But you get the idea. It could be that he wanted to make use of this two-stage process as a way to make it absolutely clear that the man had been healed completely, as opposed to maybe partially. So without looking at a a, a commentary, I'm sure the Church Fathers have something to say about this and the Catena Aria, which you could look up, by the way. Um, The Catena Aria uh, by St. Thomas Aquinas has the patristic commentaries on this. But um, that's what comes to my mind. Thank you. You're welcome. And I think I'm going to do a little more homework and uh, take a look at what the Catena Aria says about that. Anything more, do, or did we get it? Uh, no, that was it. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Let's go to Eileen now in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Hello, Eileen, and welcome. Hi, Patrick. I have a quick question. Sure. Um, I was wondering if um, you could enter into the home of a couple who's Catholic. They got married outside of the church because one of the, um, the the spouse never received an annulment. And I was told that I would give scandal if I were invited over for dinner and I entered into their home. And I, I was don't... just wondering if you could respond to that. Yes, I don't know if I would go that far. There could be cause for scandal if people thought that you were going there, let's say your looky-loo neighbor, Mrs. Kravitz, keeping an eye on people who are coming and going. It's possible that you could give scandal if it appeared as though you were, by your presence, you were condoning their living arrangement, um, which you don't, obviously. Um, How likely is it that anyone would even know that you go to this place, that this house for dinner? Eileen? Well, it's a relative of mine, so Mm -hmm. my children would, and you know, and they would be invited over, and it's just a very uncomfortable situation because it's such a familiar um, family that's a part of our lives. Well, I would, I would propose the following, Eileen. Keeping in mind that you and I are not Jesus, so he's in a separate Thank category you. than we are, obviously. 
But Jesus did go into the homes of people who were manifest sinners, and he did so like in the tax collector's case or the Pharisee's case or the, um, the various people who, who led unseemly lives, and Jesus would go to where they were and have meals with them. And it was scandalous to people who observed, but it didn't, it didn't deter the Lord from doing it. So I think there can be something there for us if by going you're making an effort in some way to evangelize them and okay. to you know, maybe go there and bring a, a, a housewarming gift of a Bible or a housewarming gift right. of a crucifix or something. So I, okay. <clears throat> pardon me, I could see daylight here if you and your children were to go and make it an opportunity to bring this up. And wouldn't it be better if you got your marriage regularized and got back on track and things like that? I mean, you could accomplish that. Now, you might not get another invitation <laughs> to come over after right, that. Right, right, right. Um, but I could see okay. a scenario like that where there's an honest effort to try to reach out to them, and by going there, you would be doing that. Now, if your children are young enough that it would it would be scandalous to them, why is Uncle Joe living with this lady? That's not our aunt. I mean, I would avoid scandal at all costs if possible. But if your kids are old enough and you explain it to them ahead of time, I do think there's a yes. context in which that could be done. Okay, okay. And they are legally married. Right, but this is a second marriage for one of them, right? For both of them. One is a widow and the other one is divorced. Okay, so the widow, I mean, if she's a widow, her first marriage is is completed anyway. So for her, the the prior marriage isn't an issue. For him, it is, because his wife is still living, I presume. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Patrick. I appreciate that. You're welcome. my, My natural inclination led me to believe that it would be okay mm-hmm. because um, I would be hopefully bringing the light of Christ there and um, and not falling into um, sin personally. Mm-hmm. But anyway, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Good chatting. Uh, before we go, I'll mention I have been in this situation myself a few times, and I've had to weigh this very question that Eileen brought up. Should I stay or should I go? And if I go, does that suggest that I'm approving of a situation that I don't approve of? So it's always important to think it through carefully before you take that step. I think 888-914-9149. Call that number now. We'll get you on the air. 888-914-9149. Thanks to network sponsor PushPay. PushPay offers parishes a platform for tracking donations and sacraments, overseeing schedules, mobile apps to help manage your administrative load, and much more. Info at relevantradio.com slash pushpay. That's relevantradio.com slash pushpay. Get connected to the conversation. Call now. 888-914-9149. That's 888 Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio. Let's go! So as promised, I did a little homework and I consulted some of the patristic commenta- commentary on Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, where Jesus heals a blind man in two stages. I had a call from a gentleman a few minutes ago on that. 
So during the break, I had a chance to crack open the Catena Aria. That's a Latin phrase. It means the golden chain. And it was a very important work that was compiled by St. Thomas Aquinas in which every single verse or set of verses in the four Gospels is paired up with the patristic commentary on those passages. So everything in the four Gospels that the Church Fathers commented on, and they commented on all of them, is compiled into this Catena Aria, this golden chain. So in Mark chapter 8, here are some selections from what the Fathers have to say on this passage about the blind man being healed in two stages. St. Bede says, knowing that the touch of the Lord could give sight to a blind man as well as to cleanse a leper, it goes on, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Uh, There is a a note here from Theophylact, for Bethsaida appears to have been infected with much infidelity, therefore the Lord reproaches it, woe to thee, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes, that's from Matthew 11. He then takes out of the town the blind man who has been brought to him, for the faith of those who brought him was not true faith. So this is interesting. And I I alluded to this, I think, in my commentary, just sort of guesstimating what might be a reason for this two-stage approach. And this patristic commentary alludes to that, that the faith of the people was not really strong, which is one reason, apparently, why Jesus led him away from them led him out of town, where presumably it was, it was just the two of them or maybe a few onlookers. Uh, the next commentary refers to, he spat indeed and put his hand upon the blind man because he wished to show that wonderful are the effects of the divine word added to action. For the hand is the symbol of working, and the spittle out of the word, the spittle rather, is a symbol of the word proceeding out of the mouth. Again, he asked him whether he could see anything, which he had not done in the case of any whom he had healed, thus showing that by the weak faith of those who had brought him and of the blind man himself, his eyes could not altogether be open. I feel happy because my my hunch, what I thought might be the answer, is tracking pretty nicely with what the fathers had to say. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking, because he was still under the influence of unfaithfulness. So he saw obscurely. St. Bede again, seeing indeed the shapes of bodies amongst the shadows, but not, unable to distinguish the outlines of the limbs from the continued darkness of his sight. Just as trees standing thick together are wont to appear to men who see them from afar or by the dim light of the night, so that it cannot easily be known whether they be trees or men. Um, and so on and so on and so on. There's quite a bit there, but it all more or less tracks along the same path there, the same trajectory. So there it is. And by the way, if you're interested, you can buy all four volumes of the Catena Aria in volume form. I have that. Or you can get the app on your phone that I have no connection to whatsoever. I don't benefit in any way, but an app I've had on my phone for quite a long time is called IPETA, P-I-E-T-A, like the P-A-TA statue that Michelangelo carved when he was something like 23, 24 years old. It sits in St. Peter's and it holds the Blessed Virgin, it shows the Blessed Virgin Mary holding the lifeless body of her crucified son Jesus. Very powerful, I'm sure you've seen it. But this little app, Ipieta, has got a ton of stuff, including the Catena Aria. 
So if you want something on the go, that's one thing to look at. 888-914-9149. Let's go now to Armando in Corona, California. Good morning, Armando. Good morning. I have uh, several questions, but I, I know I'll keep it short. Um, okay. I work with I work with uh, a lot of guys, and uh, and and they're mostly Christian, and, and and they have such a hatred towards us. I don't I don't get it. And I and I ask them why. First thing they say, "Have you ever been molested?" What? I don't get it. You know, um, by said a priest, that they say that, that some Christian fellows that I work for. Right. I mean, that we work together. I'm an electrician. We work out in the field and we're together. And, and just the hatred that they have towards. And then sometimes it's very di- difficult for me to to uh, to defend our Catholic. I love the Catholic Church so much. And, and I just I want to be able to be able to, to defend our faith and about the Virgin Mary, how the same old story that we mm-hmm. worship, that we worship. I, we don't. We use, she's an intercessor. Well, Jesus Christ is the only intercessor. That's what they say. Oh, and the, that there was another... <laughs> Let's pause people. there. Let's pause. Calm down a little bit, Armando. You seem a little anxious, and I don't want you to feel anxious. Let's pause there for a second. Do you, by chance, have your Bible? If you do, open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, okay? This is where that passage, for there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus comes in, which is what they're referring to. That's 1 Timothy 2, 5. I'll give you a second to... Uh, to catch up. Do you, I, I don't know. Do you have a Bible, Armando? I, I do. Uh, I do, Patrick, but I'm driving home right now. Oh, I don't okay. have you on speaker or nothing, but I, I okay. should be home in about five minutes. Well, it's okay. Um, it won't take that long. Yeah. It won't take that long. Okay. So that's fine. Keep your hands on the wheel. <laughs> Keep your eyes on the road. I'll just quote it to you. So that passage that they're referring to, that there's only one intercessor, they're, they're either quoting it or they're thinking about it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to which has been born at the proper time. Now, go to verse 1. So this, of course, is four verses, five verses later, and you're going to see something very interesting here. So it begins by saying, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions— and thanksgivings be made for all men, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life in all dignity and devotion. This is good and pleasing to God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The next verse, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So embedded within the very argument that they're trying to make is the solution or the response to their argument. Yes, Jesus, of course, is our unique mediator. As God and man, he alone was able to accomplish on the cross something that we could never accomplish. If it were possible for us to be to mediate between sin and an all-holy God, then human beings would have done it, and there would have been no point in Jesus being incarnated. There would have been no point to the crucifixion if human beings could have done this, and we can't do it. So Jesus, our unique Savior and mediator, he did this for us. Now notice what this means. This means that now we can do what? We can supplicate for other people. We can pray for them. We can intercede for them, etc. And we're told in verse 3 that this is good and pleasing to God, our Savior. So the way that you connect the dots for this person is to point out, number one, that we are members of the body of Christ. Now, he may say, you're not a member, but that 
beside the point. Just say, do you believe in the biblical doctrine of the body of Christ? He'll say yes. And you can point out, for example, in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and the latter more than the former, that it emphasizes in many places that there is only one body of Christ. There's not one member of the body of Christ in this life, on this planet, and then another member of the body, or another body of Christ, rather, up in heaven that the, that the people up there belong to. No, there's just one body of Christ. And if you are a member of that body, it doesn't matter whether you are in this life or in the life to come. So the church is the body of Christ. There's only one body of Christ. The third point to bring up is that death does not separate us from the body. For example, in Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 8, rather, St. Paul gives a long list. He asks the question, what will separate us from the love of Christ? He says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, and he gives many other things, heights, sword, famine, nakedness, peril, etc. None of these things, he says, can separate us from the love of Christ. So if death can't separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ, then it can't separate us from the other members of the body of Christ. We're still united with them. So that's where this passage comes in especially handy, is that <clears throat> it's a standing command given in 1 Timothy 2 that we should supplicate and pray and intercede and give thanksgivings for all people, because as it says, this is good and pleasing to God our Savior. And we see St. Paul repeatedly throughout the New Testament, not only talking about how he prays for all of us, and, and he's referring specifically to the people of his day, but he also asks them to pray for him. So he says, for example, in Romans 15, beginning in verse 30, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in the struggle by your prayers to God on my behalf. Or 2 Corinthians 1.10, In Jesus we have put our hope that he will also rescue us again as you help us with prayer. Now these are just a few of the dozens of, of similar passages. Here's the reason this is important is because when St. Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans, let's say, or to the Corinthians, he was going to them and asking them to pray to God to answer his petition. And you can imagine if you were to draw a, if you were to draw a triangle, the first line would go at the base from St. Paul to that person he was writing to. Then there'd be a line going upward from that person to God, and then another line coming from God back down to St. Paul. So it's intercessory prayer. We ask for others to pray for us. Now, because the church is the body of Christ, and as the Bible so clearly teaches, that death does not separate us from Christ or from the members of his body, what that means is that if you were to call and ask your, let's say you ask me to pray for you, you're coming to me asking me to go to God with a petition on your behalf. And when you ask the Blessed Virgin Mary to pray for you, or one of the saints in heaven, it's the same thing in kind. Now, the difference is, they're in heaven, they see God face to face. So you can't see the Blessed Virgin Mary the way you could see me, or you can't call her on the phone the way you could call me, but it's still the same thing. It's still the same biblical pattern as laid down in 1 Timothy 2, and it says this is good and pleasing to God our Savior. Now, that's just one little tidbit of what you could say in response to the kind of heat yes. that you're getting from this person. Do you see how that works? Do you see how just a little bit yes, of biblical sir. knowledge can help you? Oh, it's beautiful. The way, you, the way you say it, it's just so beautiful. I wish, God, that I would be able to defend our faith like that. If there's anything that you could 
There is. There is a way. Anything I could buy, a book that you could send me, I would. There is a way, Armando. And I'd make you the best taco you've ever had in your life. (laughs) Well, the deal just got a whole lot more interesting. So let me, first of all, give you the freebie version. The freebie version won't cost you a penny is listen to this program. Listen to Relevant Radio in general. Just keep listening. Keep listening. Keep listening. Keep listening. Keep listening. And all of this eventually is it's like a big data dump. One day after another, after another, after another. If you listen long enough, it's going to be in your brain. You will assimilate this knowledge. Okay, that's the first thing. And you can practice. And this is great because you've got somebody who wants to practice on you. He thinks he's going to badger you. But you can make use of him as a, I don't want to say sparring partner, but kind of like a sparring partner in a way. You practice and practice and practice till you get more proficient at it. And it will happen. Now, if you want some materials, I would suggest you get, and you can't, you can't write this down yet, but when you get home, re-listen to this segment and get the Beginning Apologetics books by Jim Burnham and Father, Father, um, what's his first name? Father Frank Chacon is a co-author. There are roughly 15 of these workbooks. Each workbook has about maybe 40, 50 pages max. It might be less than that. And each one is on a discrete topic. So there's one on defending Marian teachings, like the one we just talked about. There's another book on, they're really more booklets or workbooks. There's another one on the Eucharist. There's another one on scripture and tradition. There's another one on the papacy. There's another one on the sacraments and so on. If you were to get any or all of those, you would be able to, you would be able to hold your own very easily. And that's, that would be my recommendation to take the next step. Get some of those beginning Sounds apologetics books and you'll be fine. Sounds good. I appreciate it. And, and one, the, the one about the Ethiopian Bible being the one. He said Ethiopian. It was before before he, he goes, he says, the Catholic Bible isn't the, the, the real, the, the, the right one. He says there was one before that, the Ethiopian Bible. I go, what are you talking about? I, people, oh. I cannot defend this. Yeah, he's no, thinking of the pe- the I, Peshitta. That, that's what he's thinking of. Uh, the Peshitta. I have a copy of that. It, it's uh, mm-hmm. it is so. No, it's not, and it's easy to demonstrate by the pedigree of the Peshitta um, manuscripts. So we don't have the original documents. Mm-hmm. We don't have the original what are called the autographs. Let's say of the the Gospels. So what we have are copies of copies of copies, but we have recourse to the church fathers who very early on also had copies. It doesn't seem that they had the actual autograph manuscripts, but their copies are much older than what we have now, and we can demonstrate consistency and continuity and accuracy between what the church fathers quoted from Scripture and what we have now. So it's a way through the manuscript evidence of determining the accuracy and the the authenticity of what we have in our scriptures. But that, that's a wide category to talk about. But the main thing is that the biblical manuscripts are they're observable. The different codices, that's a term that's used to describe a codex, which is a great body of biblical manuscripts. And there are various bodies. You have the Codex Vaticanus, the Codex Sinaiticus, and others. So Suffice to say that the Peshta, as it's sometimes uh, referred to, is not one of the original versions of Scripture. It's a translation that took place much later, 
And for that, you can look it up in the Catholic Encyclopedia Online, for example. Just type in Catholic Encyclopedia Online and then go to um, Canon of Scripture. And it will give you details on things like that. I have to take a break, Armando, but I hope those details are, are helpful to you. And call me back anytime. I'd be happy to pick up any other of these topics. And you can let your Protestant friend that I invite him to listen to this program and even call in. I'd love to talk to him. Maybe we can make some progress that way. I'll be right back. Today we'd like to thank Santi, who's listening in Maine, for donating his 1983 Jaguar XJ6. Classy. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles, trucks, boats, and RVs by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. That's relevantradio.com slash car. Welcome back to the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Have a question? Give Patrick a call. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid on Relevant Radio. I'm not even going to say it, Cyrus. I say it every time, but I won't say it this time. Are the, are the little Madrids uh, <laughs> getting good at base? They're, they're starting. And this is one reason why. So, okay, I'll say it anyway. So this is a, a girl. <clears throat> her name's Ellen. I don't know what her last name is, but she's got a YouTube channel called Ellen Plays Bass. And she's, I don't know. I don't think she's even 12 years old yet. And her dad's a real, you know, music guy. He's got a really great studio. She learned how to play the guitar when she was little, or the bass guitar when she was little. And so that was her playing Hysteria by Muse on the bass. So to your point, Cyrus, some of my, well, a number of my grandchildren, when they've come over to visit, I'll put that channel on for them and they're mesmerized by it. How can that girl play the bass so well? And so uh, at least one of my grandchildren now is taking bass lessons as a result of being so enthralled by that and saying, I want to do that. <laughs> so now... The bass lessons are happening. It's fun. I enjoy watching a whole new crop of kids enjoy the bass guitar. I'm looking at it right now, and there's <laughs> no way that sound is coming from that little kid, but it is. It is. It's amazing. It really is. Ellen plays bass. Moms and dads, if you're looking for a YouTube channel that your kids will not have any problems with, they won't see anything that's weird or gross or problematic, uh, that's just a lot of fun. And if you, obviously the way these channels work is that whatever's at the top is the most recent. So if you scroll way down to the bottom, you'll be getting videos of her playing bass from like a couple of years ago. She's this little pixie. You know, the bass guitar is bigger than she is. And she's wailing. <laughs> it's really, it's really something. So there it is. It's called Ellen Plays Bass. Let's see. Let's go to Rick now in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. Good morning, Rick, and welcome. Good morning, Patrick. Uh, my wife and I uh, have been conducting a adult enrichment session at our parish. Okay. And the presentation is based on a presentation that you gave on why be Catholic. And if you recall, there's, there's five different reasons you gave, including the authority, the history, the Eucharist, mm -hmm. uh, were all included. Yesterday, uh, yesterday at our session, the discussion was on uh, the Eucharist after your presentation. Mm -hmm. 
okay. specifically the real the real presence. Uh, someone in the group pointed out that uh, some Catholics do not believe in the real presence. So I read, first of all, from Corinthians, where Paul warns about taking the body of Christ in an unworthy manner. Uh, my question to you is, in taking the Eucharist at Mass, and it, if we take it and we don't believe that it truly is the body of Christ, uh, the question is, is that a sin? And if it is, is that a mortal sin, which also raises the possibility that it might not be ever confessed? It is a, Yes, it is a sin. And St. Paul gives two important warnings in the same passage. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If, you're, if you need to go back to where it is, it's in 1 Corinthians. And he, okay. says if, um, he says in verse 28, Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So that word discerning could be translated in a few different ways recognizing, discerning, etc. Judging is another way to look at it. Like he makes, he, he judges that this really is Jesus. Those are all different ways one could translate it. But the import is the same, that in addition to recognizing the body of Christ in the church, also in a particular way recognizing the body of Christ here, if he does this without believing, without recognizing or making that judgment, then he eats and drinks. Now, the word judgment in this context means damnation. So he will he will be eating and drinking judgment or damnation on himself. So that is a, obviously a serious warning. It's not something light or mild. And to your mm-hmm. point about somebody who receives the Holy Eucharist and doesn't believe in it and doesn't ever confess that because he never becomes Catholic, that's a serious situation to be in. So, mm-hmm. yes, to answer your question, that would be a serious sin, as St. Paul lays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what if he is a Catholic? Well, then, if he's a Catholic and yet denies one of the cardinal truths of the faith, being the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, then he would be at least a material heretic. And the sin of heresy mm-hmm. is a mortal sin. Now, he wouldn't necessarily be a formal heretic unless he was openly proclaiming that he didn't believe in this. But let's say in his heart he really didn't believe it. He was just going through the motions. Mm-hmm. Eh, I don't believe that stuff about the real presence. That's just a, merely a symbol and nothing more. Sure, that would be a serious sin. Okay. So, questioning is questioning a sin then? No, no, you, that wasn't the way you phrased it to me. You said if he doesn't believe it, that's different from questioning. So if, yeah. you're, if you're struggling with something, and maybe you even have doubts, and you just can't quite wrap your head around it, and you feel hesitant, or however we might describe it, that's different than if you just simply say, eh, I don't believe that, and you reject mm-hmm. it. That would be sinful. But for you or I to struggle with, doubts and questions, and I just really don't fully understand this, but I'm trying, Lord, I'm trying. That's certainly not a sin. Okay. All right. Thank you very much, Patrick. You're welcome, and I'm glad to know that those DVDs from 
way back when. <laughs> I think those, if it's the one I'm thinking of, it may have been from 20 years ago when my hair was jet black. <laughs> it's not jet black anymore. <laughs> Uh, they were, they were, but I've also used them in prison and, uh, oh, aren't still those guys getting day. punished enough? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> no, actually they love it. They love it. Okay. And, uh, thank you very much for all you do. Thank you, Rick. And, uh, my greetings to your wife. I can hear her in the background. Hello to her as well. Okay. All right. Thank you. Good chatting. 888-914-9149. Cyrus, I couldn't resist. I saw daylight. I had to go for it. Yeah, that was good. That was a good one. Okay. You could have said that too. That would have been even more funny had you said that. I'm not saying um, that. You're going to keep that at the ready now. Uh, let, let's go to Bernadette in Bloomington, Minnesota. Hello, Bernadette. Good morning, Patrick. My first question, I have just two short ones. I mean, okay. The first one is, how can I dispose of a, a bravery divine office book? Uh, my husband had used it and um, he's now passed away, but it's just not usable anymore. I just is don't it know falling how apart? To, yeah, it's really, and it's not, it's not in good condition at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's not something you could like hand on to somebody else. It would be hard to make no. use of, right? Well, the rule of thumb typically is if you need to dispose of something like that to burn it or bury it. And if it's flammable, like that kind of thing would be flammable, simply burning it would probably be the best option. Um, yeah, which, which I don't really have a place to burn it either. I don't know where I'd burn it. But my my question about that was also was, could I um, shred it and have it? You just could. Be, you could. Can I? And be yeah, recycled? so if you have a shredder at home, um, that's yeah, probably I my favorite all-time favorite office device in my office is my shredder. Because if there? it goes in the shredder, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. What's that, Bernadette? Yeah, I'm sorry. I just didn't hear the last part. Faded. Oh, I was just going to say you could shred it. That would be fine as an option if there's no place to burn okay, it. Okay, okay, great. And my other question, um, well, was I'll add just a little short one about the holy cards and that we get in the mail. Some of them have relics in them. Um, so third class and so but how can i dispose of those yeah what you can do you mean like a little little lightweight metal or something like that um not really a metal maybe it's just a little dot of something maybe it's a piece of cloth mm -hmm. well these are these are things that you know who knows if they really are relics and at, at best they would be like a third class relic so if you were really if you really wanted to be extra scrupulous, maybe you could bring yeah. them to the church. Often parishes in the vestibule will have a little basket with things like that, rosaries, holy cards, things that people can put there with the pastor's permission, of course, and and make it available for people who might want to make use of it. I've seen that done before. Um, you could shred it. You could, if you don't have a way to burn anything, I suppose shredding would be another way to go about it. Um, but any of those things would be okay under the circumstances. Mm -hmm. You could also Thank write you. to the places that send you those things and say, please stop sending them to me. You know, there's I... so much of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, one yeah. other qu quick question I wanted to ask you would be, um, is the difference between tithing and alms. Um, I, I have always looked at them as synonymous and of the 10% of tithing, I've always thought, well, it's just like, you know, giving to organizations that serve the poor 
And, and, tithing and then I've read somewhere that tithing meant only to the church. Yeah, tithing and almsgiving are synonymous. Means the same Excuse thing. Excuse me? So tithing and almsgiving are synonymous. Okay. If you're tithing, you are giving alms, and, and it's a particular way of doing it. The church, of course, doesn't require tithing. We're not obligated to give 10% or any given percentage of our income. The more you give, the more generously you give, the better, the Bible says. But tithing as a biblical concept is not required, but it is a good thing to do, and it is almsgiving. So in that sense, yes, it is synonymous. Thanks, Bernadette. We are we have reached the end of hour one just like that. Look at that, Cyrus. It's over. Not the show, but just hour one is over. And we will start up the machine here in another two minutes or so. We'll get right back to it, including your phone calls. If you want to be on the air, call this number, please. 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. And I want to share with you that updated info about in vitro fertilization. Not only Alabama, not the rock group, not the band, I should say, but uh, some IVF news that's kind of surprising. 